Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at morbidlybeautiful.com. Check out Morbidly Beautiful for all your needs in the horror realm, from interviews, top 10 lists, reviews, whatever you want, they have it. They also have an extensive library of podcasts, which I highly suggest checking out after this episode here. Now today we are going to continue our look at the Texarkana Midnight Murders, the Phantom Murders, the Moonlight Murders, whatever you want to call it, the town that dreaded sundown. Either way, we're going to continue our look at it, and today we're going to look at the investigators and the investigation that took place. But first I have to give you a little bit of a warning, it is hot as fuck here. And that usually leads to cicadas singing the song of their people in the tree right outside my window. So if you hear some weird buzzing, that's what that is. It's not my shitty setup or anything. No, 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 no. But let's continue with our look into the Texarkana murders. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Before we get into the investigation itself, let's look at the people who were involved in said investigation. There were a few. A few people got involved in this thing, and rightfully so. First up, we have the Miller County Chief Sheriff's Deputy, Tillman Byron Johnson. Johnson was born on May 24th, 1911 in Stamps, Arkansas. He moved to Texarkana in the 30s and started working for the Miller County Sheriff's Department in 1938. He served in the military for two years during World War II before returning home and working on the Virgil Starks murder case. He soon became one of the leading investigators in the case. Johnson did not believe that the Phantom committed the Starks murder. He was a member of the First United Methodist Church of East 6th Street. That's quite a mouthful. He was the last surviving lawman of the Phantom Slangs and was the quote-unquote go-to man for the case. He had been contacted by many interested individuals, including television crews from all over the world, including China, Sweden, and Australia. He kept many personal files of the case, which became the only case files available because many of the original files, photographs, and police notes eventually went missing from both police departments. Johnson firmly believed the identity of the Phantom was that of the prime suspect, Ewell Swinney. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Johnson departed from the sheriff's office in 1957 and became an insurance adjuster, which he retired from in the 1970s. He then became a private investigator, Johnson died on Wednesday, December 10th, 2008, in a local hospital at the age of 97. He was survived by two sons, a daughter-in-law, one daughter, a son-in-law, two grandsons, and granddaughters-in-law, one granddaughter, and 12 great-grandchildren. The man lived a very full life. That is something we cannot argue. Also working on the case was Arkansas State Police Detective Max Andrew Tackett, and he was born on August 13th, 1912, in Glenwood, Arkansas, and moved to Texarkana in 1941. He served on the police state force from 1941 to 1948, having served as a trooper and a special investigator during that period. 
Tackett was the Texarkana police chief from 1948 until his retirement in 1968. In 1951, he became the president of the Arkansas Peace Officers Association. He was a World War II combat vet who had served in Belgium, France, and the Netherlands, as well as Germany. Max also was a member of the Beach Street Baptist Church and the Optimists Club. I've always been curious what an Optimists Club really is. Is it people who are just like, the sun's gonna shine tomorrow, it's gonna be a great day. I doubt it, but uh, let me keep my weird little fantasy there. Max was said to be a colorful, outspoken, and even controversial figure in the police department. Max became the arresting officer of the lead suspect, Ewell Swinney, that's a name we're going to hear quite a bit over the next couple episodes, after realizing that on each night of the murders, a car was stolen and later abandoned. Tackett, sadly, unlike Byron Johnson, died at a fairly young age at the age of 59. He died in the local hospital. Present at the case as well was Bowie County Sheriff William Hardy, or Bill Presley. He was born on... April 25th, 1895, in the Red Springs community of Bowie County. He was a member of the men's Bible class at the First United Methodist Church on 4th Street and State Lane Avenue. Presley had served 20 years in elected office, including terms as county commissioner, county treasurer, and sheriff. He was a veteran of World War I and served overseas in France with the American Expeditionary Forces. He was a member of the Chapelwood Methodist Church, American Legion, veterans of foreign wars, and a 32nd degree Mason and Shriner. He was a longtime friend of Texas City Chief of Police, Jack N. Runnels, and he knew the Starks family fairly well. He was the first lawman on the scene of Mary Jean Larry's attack and the first and second double murders. Presley died at the age of 77 in hospital. Another member of the task force for the investigation was Texas Chief of Police Jack Neely Runnels, or Jackson Runnels. And he was born on September 26, 1897. Runnels was a longtime friend of Bowie County Sheriff Presley. He and Presley were the first officers called to the scene of both the double murders. Runnels was also the lead investigator of the Booker's saxophone after it had been found. He was a law enforcement officer for 30 years, serving as chief of police for 20 of them. Having been re-elected 10 times, he retired in 1953 and became a farmer. He too died in local hospital, but this time from a heart attack at the age of 69. Last up, and maybe the most famous member of the investigation was Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Lone Wolf Gonzalez. He was born on July 4th, 1891, in Spain, to parents who were naturalized American citizens. He married in 1920 and enlisted in the Texas Rangers that same year. He was in charge of controlling gambling, bank robbery, bootlegging, narcotic trafficking, prostitution, riots, and general lawlessness from the Red River to the Rio Grande and from El Paso, Texas to Sabine during the 1920s and 30s. He was made captain of the company B Texas Rangers in 1940. In 1946, while hunting the Phantom, he swore to stay in Texarkana until the killer was apprehended. But three months after the last murder, he up and left. 
Gonzalez believed that the attack on Hollis and Laurie was not committed by the Phantom. He also believed that someone else murdered Virgil Starks. Gonzalez retired from the Rangers in 1951 and moved to Hollywood to become a technical consultant for radio, television, and the movies. Most notably, the long-running 1950s radio and TV show Tales of the Texas Ranger. Gonzalez, a Mason and a Presbyterian, died of cancer on February 13, 1977, at the age of 85. During his time in Texarkana, J.Q. Mahaffey of the Texarkana Gazette, during the spree of the Phantom, described Gonzalez as, quote, He was one of the best-looking men I have ever seen and wore a spotless khaki suit and a white 10-gallon hat. He picked two ivory handle revolvers on his hips and did not deny that he was the ranger who sat in the cashier's office at the Crazy Water Hotel in Mineral Wells and gunned down two ex-convicts who sought to rob the place. He was so good-looking that my girl reporters would not leave him alone. He really didn't have time to hunt down the Phantom. He was too busy giving out interviews and trying to run the Gazette. All of the other officers working on the case were insanely jealous of the lone wolf and complained bitterly every time his picture appeared in the paper. Hmm, well, I think we're going to have to look up this man. N not for any particular reason. No. No, I'm not, I'm not going to do that right now. There's not a link here that I'm going to click. You didn't hear that click. No. Oh, there's no picture. So it's fine. It's fine. We're safe. We're safe. Now back onto the the rest of this, this story of the lone wolf. Mahaffey also stated that after the murder of Virgil Starks, the police declared the farmhouse off limits to everybody. Quote, several nights later, I was holding forth in the Arkansas police station when a call came through that a neighbor had seen strange lights in the farmhouse. We sped to the scene and I hid behind a car while police chief Max Tackett and three other patrolmen approached the house. Chief Tackett yelled into the house that the police had the place surrounded and the phantom might as well give up. Well, who do you suppose walked out? None other than Lone Wolf Gonzalez of the Texas Rangers and a woman photographer from the Life and Time magazines. Lone Wolf explained rather sheepishly that he had been reenacting the crime and the young lady was taking pictures of him. Chief Tackett turned to me and shouted at the top of his voice, Mahaffey, you can quote me as saying the phantom murders will never be solved until the Texarkana Police Department gets rid of the big city press and the Texas Rangers. Tillman Johnson said, quote, whenever he came down the stairs from his hotel room, he got called for the press. He was a showman. He was a handsome man, I'd say, and he made a good appearance. And of course, he had a reputation for being a killer, so the press all followed Gonzalez. He went on to also say, quote, no, he didn't do any real police work himself. He'd get in that car and ride around and ask a lot of questions about what the other officers had found. Then he'd release it to the press like it was his information. It got to where, after a while, some officers wouldn't tell him anything. 
and Louis Swampy Graves, a Texarkana Gazette reporter in 1946, described Gonzalez as a handsome man with a lot of personality. He was well-built, he said, and wore a whipcord suit and a battle jacket with bright buttons. He was very clean-looking, with an olive complexion, and wore pearl-handled pistols, one on each hip. He looked like a typical Texas Ranger, said Graves. He went on to also say he would have been perfect in the Old West. He fit the description going around in those years about the number of Texas Rangers needed to quell a riot. One riot, one ranger. Now my best guess is that Lone Wolf didn't go to Hollywood just to be a technical director or a consultant. My guess is he went to go be a movie star. But it just didn't work out for him. So he did what he could do and got into the movies another way, which is fine. I mean, I don't work in the movies. I wish I worked in the movies. But let's go on with some of the investigation, shall we? And then maybe we'll do some suspects. We'll see how the time runs here. So the investigation and post-events of the Phantom Killings was obviously going to cause a stir in the community. The Miller County Sheriff's Department was notified just minutes after the alarm reached Hope City Police. Arkansas State Police Officers Charlie Boyd and Max Tackett got the call on the radio and were the first officers at the scene. Some of the reports were contradictory. One of the officers said that they had found Starks slumped in the blood-soaked chair and that the chair had caught fire from the electrical pad that was heating his neck. Smoke was filling the room, they said, and was coming up all around the man between his legs. Yet Sheriff Davis said when the officers arrived at the scene, they found the chair on fire, but Starks' body was not burned because it had fallen to the floor. Immediately after reports of the slaying spread, blockades were set up several miles northeast and southwest on Highway 67 East. Sheriff Davis called in officers from the entire area to help the investigation, including two agents from the FBI, Captain Gonzalez, and other Texas Rangers. Sheriff Presley and his deputies, Sheriff Jim Sanderson from Little River County, Arkansas State Police, local police, and many others. In the house, investigators found a trail of blood with scattered teeth. On the dining room table were Katie Starks's supplies for making a dress. Gonzalez, after seeing the virtual river of blood, stated, quote, It is beyond me why she did not bleed to death. There were only two bullet holes in the window, leading Sheriff Davis to believe an automatic rifle was used. Investigators declared that after the killer shot Virgil, he waited patiently outside the window to shoot at his wife. Three clues were found at the scene. The first was the caliber of bullets. The second was a flashlight found in the hedge underneath the window that Starks was shot from. And the last were bloody prints around the house, shoe prints on the kitchen floor, and smudged fingerprints in other places. Sheriff Davis stated that although this murder could not be directly linked to the Phantom Killer because of the caliber of bullets, which was a 22 in this case, said, quote, it is possible that the killer is one and the same man. Those who have been driving in the area near the time of the slaying, along with other several men found in the vicinity were picked up for questioning. Early on Saturday morning, bloodhounds were brought in from Hope by the Arkansas State Police. They found two trails that led to the highway before the scent was lost. 
By Sunday night, more officers were called in to help in the investigation. Officers had detained at least 12 suspects, but only kept three for further questioning. 47 officers were working to solve the murders. Among them, sheriffs of four counties, Captain Gonzalez and his staff of Texas Rangers, and Chief Deputy Tillman Johnson. The flashlight was sent to Washington, D.C. for further inspection by the FBI. The unofficial theory for a motive amongst the majority of the officers was that of quote-unquote sex mania. I went to sex mania once. It was great. That's a terrible joke at this time. I'm so sorry. As large amounts of money in the room were not taken, nor was Katie Starks' purse, which was laying on the bed and contained money and jewelry. The title on the front page of the Texarkana Gazette on Sunday, May 5th, 1946, read in big bold letters, quote, Sex Maniac Hunted in Murders, unquote. On the night of Virgil's death, the reward had reached $7,025. The following Tuesday, a mobile radio station was sent from Austin, Texas, and Gonzalez stated that the unit, which was, quote, one of the best in the country, would be accompanied by a fleet of prowl cars furnished with two-way radio equipment, which would allow the officers to converse not only with headquarters, but with other cars as well. A clerk from the Bowie County Selective Service Board, number one, stated that even though he contacted officers two weeks beforehand, no investigating officer had checked his files. Another clerk from the Miller County Draft Board stated that no request for examination of her files had ever been made. Both explained that the reports would have revealed information such as thumbprints, rifleman awards, and mental and physical conditions of the registrants. That night, during a radio interview, Gonzalez asked residents to help the investigation by refraining from spreading and repeating rumors. He said, quote, these only take the officers from the main route of the investigation. It is so important that we captured this man and we cannot afford to overlook any lead, no matter how fantastic it may seem. Seems a little contradictory in my mind, but whatever. The next day, the mobile radio transmitting station arrived in Texarkana late in the afternoon, along with 10 police cars and 20 state police officers. Gonzalez placed it into operation immediately. A correspondent from the International News Service made reservations to come to the city and cover the story. Bob Carpenter, from the Mutual Broadcasting Service in New York, arrived and was arranging a coast-to-coast -coast broadcast directly from the KCMC Studios, or the Gazette and Daily News radio stations, on 315 national stations. John Holman, chairman of the Reward Fund, asked people to send their donations in check made out to either the Texarkana National Bank or the State National Bank. He said that the reward money would be kept in a deposit slip, which would make it easier to return the money back to the donors if needed. On Thursday morning, May 9th, Sheriff Davis was notified that the flashlight found at the Starks murder scene contained no fingerprints. On Wednesday, May 29th, a colored picture on the front page of the Texarkana Gazette showed the flashlight. It was the Texarkana Gazette's first spot-colored photograph. The description under the picture read, 
have you seen this two-cell flashlight? This is a picture, in detail, of the flashlight found at the scene of the Starks' murder. This is a two-cell, all-metal flashlight, both ends of which are painted red. Three rivets hold the head of the flashlight onto the body. There have only been a limited number of these sold in the area. If you have owned or know anyone who has owned one of these lights, report it to Sheriff W.E. Davis at the Miller County Courthouse in Texarkana, Arkansas. You may be the one to aid in the solving of the Phantom Slayings. In the May 11th edition of the Texarkana Gazette, Sheriff Presley and Chief of Police Jack Runnels asked for any information on missing persons on the night of the murders. Quote, Somebody in Texarkana or Bowie or Miller Counties knows that somebody else was out of pocket on the nights of February 23rd and the 22nd, March 23rd to the 24th, April 13th to the 14th, and May 3rd. And Sheriff W.H. Presley and Chief of Police Jack Reynolds want persons having such knowledge to report to them immediately. Said the newspaper in a joint statement, the officers declared, We want every man and woman in these two counties to recall the dates of these murders, and also to recall whether or not any person close to them was missing or out of the pocket during those nights. Persons who have such information and have been withholding it when they know they should report it are leaving themselves open to the possible charges of complicity in the events the Slayer is captured. Make no mistake about the fact that the Slayer will be captured because we will not give up on the hunt until he is. All information received will be treated confidentially. We urge you to come in and tell us what you know. Don't be hesitant or fear that you are causing an innocent man embarrassment and trouble inasmuch all investigation will be confidential. There's no time to take any chance on information which might lead us to the Slayer. The maniac must be captured. We believe that we are justified in going to any ends to halt the chain of murders. Bear in mind, this killer may strike at anyone. He may strike at a person's close to him. For that reason, we believe any person with information that may lead us to the murder should act in the interest of self-preservation. On Saturday, May 11th, a teletype machine arrived from Austin, Texas in the afternoon and was installed in the Bowie County Sheriff's Office. It was in operation later that night. Gonzalez explained that the machine would aid in the investigation by connecting them with other law enforcement officers in Texas. Sheriffs Presley and Davis suggested raising a reward fund of $2,500 for information that would help catch the killer of Virgil Starks. They mentioned that if the slayer of Mr. Starks was the same killer responsible for the other murders, then the Starks reward would be combined with the other rewards, equating to the sum of $10,000 which in 1946 was approximately a bajillion dollars. Over a month later, on Monday, June 10th, Virgil's father, Jack Starks, added a $500 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of his son's killer. By November 1948, authorities no longer considered the Starks murder connected to the other double murders. I'm gonna leave you here on one rumor that was started on May 9th 
Many people believed that the Slayer had been caught. Some believed he was being held at the Bowie County Jail surrounded by Texas Rangers with submachine guns on their knees. Others believed that he was flown to an out-of-town jail. The Gazette and news offices were drowned with phone calls, both local and long distance, inquiring about the apprehension of the killer. Quote, Newspapers will tell the public if the killer is caught. Read one subheadline of the May 19th edition of the Texarkana Gazette. Sheriff Presley declared that innocent people were being accused of being the phantom and asked residents to show more consideration to their fellow citizens. Presley stated these rumors positively are not true. We can understand why the people believe them, though. All of us are tense and are hopeful that at any hour, officers will announce they have the killer in custody. The people must not become so anxious to rid themselves of the killer, however, that they brand innocent persons as the murderer and believe unfounded stories. The investigating officers have announced that when and if the killer is apprehended or killed, the public will be given the full story through the newspapers. We reaffirm this statement. The newspapers are kept posted on developments in the investigation and they will announce all news immediately. We believe that the people have a right to know if the killer is caught or killed and we pledge ourselves to let the public have this information. So that brings us to an end of part two. Next week we'll go over some of the suspects and well, who knows, maybe the outcome as well. I will try not to make this like a five-part episode, but at least one more. So, until next week, my name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it is on your phone. Any five-star reviews will be read out on the show. So if you want to shout out, that's the best way to do it. If you want to make me feel all warm and fuzzy, it's also a way to do it. You can follow along as well on Facebook at Horror Shots, on Twitter at Horror Shots Prod is in production, or on Instagram at Ominous Origins Podcast. Now the spooky season is coming up within the next month and a half, two months, give or take, somewhere in there. So look for some creepy new pictures to go up on the Ominous Origins Podcast page as the mood has struck to do some fun horror-themed pictures. But until next time...